Francisco, that's very, very interesting that in the Declaration of Independence, I wonder if it's a question of ignorance or just somebody didn't notice or what, to say that the nation was born in Israel, where in fact, according to Jew, Judaism itself, they were born at Mount Sinai, which is not, that is actually a very interesting contradiction. <laughs> To Committing High Reason, a podcast where we dissect important topics such as good versus evil, religion versus no religion, Zionism versus Judaism, and our pet peeve, political propaganda. Committing High Reason will give you tools to strengthen your intellectual independence, enhance your critical thinking, and hopefully acquire some very new perspectives. Now, here's your host. Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. Good morning, Nico. How are you this morning? I'm well, thank you. Great to be with you. It's great to have you on. Listen, Miko, could you give the, the listener a little introduction as to your story? I mean, you grew up in a gold star, super ultra Zionist family, not just Zionist family, royal Zionist family, your grandfather, your father. And between where you were then and where you are now is a vast distance. It's a fascinating story. Could, could, could you share it with us? Sure, happy to. So uh, I, I grew up in a family that has within it, I could say, the, the, all the elements of the grandeur of Zionism. So grandparents who came with the second and the third Aliyah, you know, in the 1920s, on one side, they were, you know, blue-collar people who worked the land and so forth. On the other side, they were kind of Jewish aristocrats, politicians. On my mother's side, Katz Nelson family, they were doctors. And my grandfather signed the Declaration of Independence, and then he became an ambassador. He was, you know, he was in the Vadalumi, you know, the, the kind of the pre-state Zionist government in Palestine. And uh, my father was in the Palmach and then remained in the military. And he was a general in the 1967 war. So he participated in 48 and he was injured and then he remained. And so all this, you know, all this heroism. And again, being one of the generals of 1967, which is, of course, you know, these are legendary figures. So I grew up with that and admiration for Zionism, admiration for the state Every conversation, almost every conversation at the dinner table had to do with the state. What's good for the state? What are we doing for the state? What is happening? You know, it's, it's when you think about it, and as I, as I talk about it like this, it's, it's, it's borderline fascism because the state was like everything, you know. And that's so anyway, even, are, are, you, are you, that's even with the left-wing Zionists? And this was later on. So then, well, this, yeah, we were, of course, you know, associated with labor. Our family was associated with labor. And then after, my, although my father was probably the only one in his kind of generation of his group that never joined a political party because he believed it was wrong to be in the military and join a political party, whereas everybody else was a member of labor. It was almost something you had to do in order to to progress, to do anything. And the Jabotinskyists, the revisionists, or the, the what's today, the Likuds. Yeah, they were the bad guys. They were the you, bad guys. You didn't even, even say their name. Even the, though they were the real fascists. They were they even were more fascists. Yeah, they, were the, they wore brown uniforms, and they mm-hmm. were right. outright fascists. But this was, you know, this was kind of a unique, I suppose, kind of fascism. 
Then after my father retired, he had an academic career and he began this. He was one of the first Zionists to call for this two-state solution. And him and a few others really invented this idea of a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza Strip as a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And he said, basically, of course, we would love to have Hebron and Bethlehem and all these places, but we can't. There are other people there and we have to find a way to live in this country. We can't live by the sword forever. And that really was the parting of him, his parting from the mainstream, that mainstream Zionist, even though it was considered kind of the labor Zionist, but still, because they all accepted that after 67, that's it. It's all ours. We have East Jerusalem, we have the old city, we have Hebron and Bethlehem and so on. And so that's it. And when he was a young officer, actually, I have a quote that he gave a lecture during a meeting of all the important Zionist leaders of Ben-Gurion and all the others were there, were present, where he said very clearly that the military is waiting for the government to give the order to push the eastern boundary of Israel, the eastern border, into the Jordan River. In other words, take the West Bank. This is in the 50s. But anyway, going back to the my family story, this kind of pertains to the mm-hmm. Six-Day War and so on, but... Going back to my family, then he became this, you know, this guy who met with Arafat and with the PLO. So the story of the peace process and, you know, engaging with Palestinians and so forth. And then he died shortly after Oslo. So he died in 1995. He welcomed Oslo at first. And then the very last article, the very last interview with him, he said, Rabin does not want peace. Israel does not want peace. And Oslo is proof that Israel is not interested in peace at all. So that was his legacy. And I always remained kind of, you know, this kind of a liberal Zionist, left-wing Zionist, if you will, a two-state solution type of Zionist. And, and then things changed. And then I embarked on this, on this journey to engage with Palestinians. And having taken that journey, I, my perspective changed entirely to the point where today I'm clearly one of the probably better known anti-Zionist voices out there. Full, full-blown full anti-Zionist, BDS, Palestinian rights, all of the above. All of the above, full-blown anti-Zionist, rejecting Zionism, rejecting the state of Israel, calling for a single democracy with equal rights and the right of return to refugees. Now, people ask, and I assume you will, you know, what caused the change? So I'll preempt the question. <laughs> And usually a change like that comes as a result of something terrible. We don't change our perspective in life, you know, just like that. We wake up one day. Usually something terrible happens. It forces us, you know, to reflect and then and then eventually change our perspective. Or, or we get a refutation to our previous perspective and we, we, we see proof True. to a different perspective. So we change like one of those two. True. Well, in my case, my sister's little girl was killed in a suicide attack in Jerusalem in 1997. Oh, uh, that was Sabaros? No, that was before Sabaros. Before Sabaros. 2000, 2002, I think. No, this was 1997, Ben Yehuda mm-hmm. Street. 1997 was a brutal year. There was a couple of explosions in Ben Yehuda Street, and then there was this one. So it was like three, one after the other. It was, a, it was really a bad, you know, 1997 was... It's funny because Netanyahu was prime minister and he took pride in the fact that he it was a peaceful era during his time. But anyway, it was safe. 
so anyway, that kind of for that was the exactly the kind of shock that forced me to reflect and take a look and and you know think about this you know three young men perfectly healthy killing themselves blowing themselves up I mean what a horrible horrible thing to do why would they do this and then killing of course innocent uh, civilians along with them so that kind of forced and my journey into Palestine and you know the title of my book is the general son journey of an Israeli in Palestine. Mm-hmm. The journey into Palestine was really the journey into meeting Palestinians. And it started in the United States and eventually it moved on to Palestine and first Palestinian towns inside proper, you know, 1948 Israel, and then later on into the West Bank and to Gaza and so forth. And so that was my journey. And, and having seen what I've seen and learned what I've learned, I had to make a decision whether I could accept Zionism or not, because I found that the mythology that I was brought up with is a lie. It's mythology. The whole Zionist claim to the right, to the land, and to... Well, the entire mythology is basically false. What? what tell me a little about the, the mythology. Tell the listener about the mythology. And I, I know that it was, it, was a com- it was actually synthetically engineered by a combination of people. Ben Sian Dinor, Ben Gurion actually hired him to create a national mythology, a new Jewish historical past. But the listener may not know exactly what mythology you're, you're referring to. Could you help us out here a bit? So basically that this whole uh, notion of re- Jewish um, Judaism being a religion and waiting for the Messiah is all a bunch of baloney. We need to take things in our own hands. We, and, and, then, and then basically what they did is they turned Judaism into a religion. I'm sorry, from a religion to a nationality. They said that the Old Testament or the Bible basically is our history book and Palestine is our homeland and Hebrew is our language and we are a nation like other nations and we need to return and we need to do this by force. And of course we did that because we had a right to do that and the Arabs came and attacked us so we defeated them because we are, you know, we are the children of the Maccabees and King David so we know how to be, you know, how to defeat the, the evil empires. And here we are today, back in, in you know, back back where we should be, back where we deserve to be. And that 1948 was a, was a story of heroism, and the whole story of Zionism, a story of heroism, and you know that's basically the myth. And then mm-hmm. there are two things you're describing. Both of of course are are fake myth, myths. There's one myth you're talking about the myth of the uh, history of Judaism that they faked this whole thing that the Judaism was proven untrue and we have to take things into our own hands and Jews are a nationality that could theoretically exist. And it did exist before even the state of Israel was created. Or even if let's say they would have taken Uganda or Madagascar or Alaska as their state, that part of the mythology, that false mythology could have existed on its own and it did. And it does. Then there's the political mythology the idea that they just wanted a, they're just a bunch of nice people coming to be in a land and they were attacked for no reason whatsoever. Right. So there's two separate mythologies over here, both of which are false. And you came to realize both of them. True. And eventually I realized that it not only was the mythology false, but the morality that they claim to uh, espouse, that they claim to have, is false too. In other words, it's immoral. You cannot, if, if you, I couldn't with a set of values that I 
that I own, that I possess, that I believe in, remained remain faithful to Zionism. I had to make a choice whether I was remain faithful to values that I believe in or to Zionism because they clash. And you cannot believe in human rights, equality, things like that, and at the same time be a Zionist because Zionism is inherently, and this is exactly what I came to realize, a violent racist ideology. And racism and violence is how they operate, and the state of Israel is, of course, the product of that. So that's the myth, and that's kind of, that's really my story. And then I became, you know, because I was, so then I wrote the book. In 2012, I wrote the book. And the son of a general speaking the way I do is, you know, is kind of a thing. You know, it became, I suddenly became a speaker and a writer and so on. And I published another book since. And and then I met you and you and I started having our wonderful conversations. And so this is, uh, this is basically the story. And you know, the, the, did you and your father saw things the way you did also? You know, what what are you talking about? The immorality of Zionism, the what you refer to as the supremacy or the racism of Zionism and uh, those type of things. Yes, but they don't see it. They didn't see it as racism. What, uh, what did they, worked. what did they see it as? You see here, here's, here's, here's my question. I'm kind of struggling with the, I'm an Orthodox Jew and we have laws given to us by God. One of which is, is prohibited. That's not a supremacist thing. It's a it's a law. Like you're not allowed to eat non kosher food. You're you're and even within Jews, a widow is not allowed to marry certain people, and a divorcee is not allowed to marry certain people. It's a law. But once you take the concept of we don't want intermarriage, and you remove religion from it. Now you say, not because God gave you a law and everybody has their God-given mission, and this is the mission of the Jews, to follow the Torah. No Torah, no nothing. We have a demographic threat. We don't want these type of people to become a majority in our country. Now, that, it needs a justification. You know, so people like David Duke points to the fact that in Israel, an atheist is allowed to marry another atheist, according to Israeli law in Israel, but a Jew is not allowed to marry a Gentile in Israel. What David Duke does not reveal is that according to Israeli law, as contradictory as it is, a Jew cannot marry another Jew who practices Christianity or Islam or another religion. That was the case of Brother Daniel. So, According to Israeli law, an atheist is, a Jewish atheist is, let's say, entitled to the law of return, but a Jew who practices Christianity, Jew doesn't believe in any religion, in any Messiah, in any God. He's entitled to the law of return because he's born Jewish, whatever that means. But if he's born Jewish, and he does believe in a Messiah, but the Messiah is Jesus, and he does believe in a God, and, but the God is someone that has a son— then you're not entitled to the law of return because you're not Jewish enough. And that doesn't make any sense. And once you, what I'm trying to struggle with is how do they in their own minds justify any of this? It's taking the, some of the tenets of religion 
but saying we don't believe in the religion, and yet we want to, from a this-worldly perspective, retain the, the effects without the causes of the religion, which doesn't make any sense. Ben-Gurion, for example, you mentioned Ben-Gurion said that the Bible is, his, is our, historical, our historical record. That was, and yet Ben-Gurion denied the truth of the Bible. He said, God never spoke to prophets. He doesn't believe in the God of the Bible. You cannot pray to God. God does not talk to prophets. And the Jews didn't even come out of Egypt. There was no Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The Jews didn't come out of Egypt. Only a few families did. So on one hand, they say they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the Bible. Yet they want the the nationalistic kind of a civic religion. That's irrational. How do they understand this? Well, you know, I'm just reminded of a story. When I visited Muncie, I was in Muncie, and then I visited, uh, and I was in Williamsburg. You know, I had a few days where I was visiting the community there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one of the people I met was uh, Rabbi Herschel Jacobowitz, rest of soul. Mm-hmm. I knew him very well. And I sat in his house, and then his wife joined us, the conversation. And we sat and talked and talked. And, you know, she had some very serious questions about Zionism and how do these Zionists live with themselves, with, you know, the things they do and so on. And one of the things I said was, I said, well, they secularized the Bible. And she laughed, such a hearty laugh, like the absurdity of this notion. She said, how can you secularize the Bible? It's an oxymoron. You know, exactly. And she thought it was so funny. I mean, she laughed and laughed and laughed at this at this, at this statement. And I thought, yeah, she's right. There's something really quite, you know, it's, it's good. It, would be, it would be comical if it wasn't so serious. But, I mean, they secularized the Bible. They secularized Judaism. That's what Zionism did. They secularized it, and they turned it into a racist, supremacist ideology, which is Zionism. That's a transformation between Judaism and Zionism, that Jews went from being a religious people, and many of them still are religious people, and transform them by secularizing what it means to be Jewish and the entire history, or the entire, I don't know if they call it history, but the entire story of the Bible, secularizing, then ignoring the history of Judaism in the 2000 years that passed, that lapsed until 1948. And then they come back to 1948 and that's where it continues. So in other words, for between the Maccabees and 1948, really nothing important happened, basically. Okay? Right. And then 1948 came, and we are the descendants of the Maccabees, so to speak. And that's what and that's what's happening uh, today. And we are we are a nation again, and we're a state again, and and so on and so forth. And we have a strong army, and we're defeating, we're, we're, the, we're the few against the many, you know, the whole thing. What's so weird about this is that, historically, the Maccabees rebelled and revolted because their freedom of religion was being squelched. There, were, there, there was oppression and there was decrees about, that, was, that were prohibiting them from practicing Judaism. If the Zionists would have been there in those days, the Maccabees would have been the ones fighting against the Zionists. It's just mm-hmm. that the Zionists changed 
the whole history of the Maccabees from a religious rebellion to some type of self-determination movement, which it, it, it wasn't. This is part of their, their history revisionism. In fact, this Maccabees thing, it started even before Herzl. And the last page, the last line in Herzl's The Jewish State Manifesto is, as soon as Zionism gets off the ground, the Maccabees will rise again. Sons of the Maccabees, or Maccabees themselves, I forgot the exact wording, will rise again. It, and as far as King David is concerned, I'll tell you a story. I was once speaking at the Central Connecticut State University, and I was talking about the differences between Judaism and Zionism, and somebody at the end in the audience asked a question. He was a guest there, and I found out later he was a, a Christian a pastor or minister, I'm not sure. And he came with a couple of friends, and he was asking me, wasn't King David a warrior? Because I was telling him Jews eschew violence, and well, wasn't King David famous? I said, no. I said, that's the, that started with Gretz. And that uh, continued with the Zionists. I said, take a look at this. Look at the book of Psalms, which is King David's composition, right? And he was a, a Christian clergyman. He knew the Old Testament. And I said, King David was an actual king with an actual army. And the power that kings had in those days, they could kill whoever they want. They could do whatever they want, right? And what would kings aspire to? Uh, bigger kingdoms, conquest, and stuff like that. I said, nowhere in the entire book of Psalms does King David ever... Uh, talk about how strong he is, how big an army he has, how much territory he wants. Instead, it's all humble prayers to God. God, I'm weak. You're strong. God, please help me. God, I need your help. God, you, please vanquish my enemies. God, please do this. It's all a relationship between him and God. He, and, and what is his aspirations as described in his own Psalms? I'll tell it to you in Hebrew, and then I'll translate it. He says, Achas shaalti me'es Hashem oisa avakesh. Shivti b'veis Hashem kol yimei chayai. Lachzois b'noyam Hashem ulevakab hecholoi. King David says, what does he aspire to? He says, one thing I ask of God. One thing, and that is the only thing that I will request. One thing. Now, what do you think this king would ask for? that I should sit in the study hall in the house of God all my life and never leave to bask in the splendor of God and to continue to visit in his sanctuary. That's it. That's all King David wanted. The idea that King David was some type of Conan the Barbarian or a Ragnar Lothbrok or, or Genghis Khan or something like that, that is, that's not the Jewish version of King David. That was started by these secular historians, Zionists. And in fact, Gretz, who was not officially a Zionist, but Shlomo Avineri, in his book, The Making of Modern Zionism, lists him as one of the founding fathers of Zionism. And he says, even though he wasn't officially a Zionist, but he was more than anybody else, he was responsible more than anybody else for this transformation of the Jews who identified as a religious community to a nationality with self-determination aspirations and national aspirations and national characteristics. And this metamorphosis, which started in the 1800s together with other nationalisms, this is what the Zionists took and they, they, they hijacked the entire, not just religion, Jewish identity. And it's so weird. I don't know any other example of any country that ever did this. 
what they did was they took a religion, they emptied it of God, they emptied it of all religious content, and they use the religious, some religious concepts, they pick and choose, they use it, distort it, change it, but they use the, the, I guess you could say the husks, the outer trappings, they fill it with nationalist content and say, we're the real Jews. I mean, you have the ancient Romans and other countries that use religion in order to enhance their political agenda, in order to further their political agenda. And then you have, like in England, France, and America, you have what they call a civic religion. But I don't know of any country that took an actual religion, Judaism, and then transformed it, emptied it of its all its content, of its meaningful content, and then replaced it with some political, atheistic, non-religious, nationalist content. It's very strange, and the fact that people believe this is Jewishness, I don't know. It's so weird. That's the fear-mongering. That, that's the, that starts, that, then you start with the Holocaust religion, and well, you have to believe this, otherwise Hitler's coming back and all the Jews will be killed, and Israel is the only solution. So you don't get a chance to think because you're always scared of another Holocaust. Of course, yeah, that's a big part of it. You know, there's this book written by a, by, a, by a rabbi I know, and the subtitle of the book is From Identity Crisis to Identity Theft. <laughs> um, yes, yes. I think yes. that's precisely, I mean, you, you nailed it when you nailed it with that, with that description. I mean, you really nailed it with that description. They were, they, and then they nailed it with what they did, because, I mean, you have to hand it to them. They were successful. In other words, they managed to convince the world and, you know, my grandfather on my mother's side was one of these Zionists that traveled around the world. I have a poster here I should show you. Uh, part of it is, in, well, it's in Hebrew and part of it's in Russian, where uh, he's speaking in Kiev in 1922. Can you see? Yes. Katznelson al Hamatsov Hartsos Hadakter. Katz Nelson. Yeah, Haram Katz Nelson. Harav, it says. What to say? No, no, Doctor. Doctor. Doctor Katz Nelson. Uh huh. Alamatzav Beretzisro. Alamatzav Beretzisro. This is March 1920. That's an actual paper. Yes. Wow. And I believe it is. I can't read the Russian, but I believe it's in Kiev. But I'm not sure. But in any case, you know, so they these secular. Kind of socialist leaning, I suppose. They were socialist leaning Jews, highly educated, shaved their beards. They didn't look like Jews. And they went around the world and, and convinced the powers that be that Zionism is the new thing and that this is the solution to the Jewish problem. And like, and as we know, you know, for the, for the Protestants in Europe in those days, this is the perfect solution. You both get rid of the Jews and you have the what is required for the second coming, which is the Jews going back to their, their homeland. So right. And and convenient and conveniently England, which was a Protestant country, owned a Palestine in those days. Exactly. It was all very, very well uh, very well done. But that's how they did it. And they and they created this, uh, you know, the identity theft is is basically what it is. And they and they transformed it in a way 
that appeals to the West, basically. And that's how they manage to, to, to do everything they've done and to accomplish everything they've accomplished. And that's precisely where we are today. It's, and, and, and like you say, they've managed, actually they've managed to, to, to bring it and to create a, a neo-fascist, violent, racist ideology and cover it up as though it is this humanitarian ideology, humanitarian project that is only, it's only, it's only intent was to save the poor Jews. And when you look today, a lot of the Christian organizations, what's it called? Christians, Christians United for Jews or something like that. Okay. The evangelicals. At, when you're at Tel Aviv airport, as you get off the plane, you know, the, 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 thing that thing you walk through i forget what it's called full of posters of them you know of this jews for i think it's called christians uh, united for jews of them you know helping poor helpless jews who are being persecuted and are hungry all over the world mm -hmm. finally come to israel and they have a radio station that is fundraising all over the united states and they raise funds to bring to get to to hire these planes to go all over the world and bring millions of Jews, poor, hungry, persecuted Jews to Israel every single day. What what countries are these Jews poor, hungry, and persecuted Nobody in? Asked that I actually called the 800 number and I said, you know, I'd love to go see one of these planes. Where where can I see these planes where all these Jews are are going on the plane and, and being rushed from hunger and persecution to Israel? And of course, it was an operator. She couldn't tell me anything. But uh, this is, and this is going on every single day. It's going on today. And so this is how, this is how they're portraying Judaism. Exactly like you said, they are being persecuted. The Nazis are everywhere. Anti-Semitism anti is everywhere. These poor, hungry, persecuted Jews need our help. And of course, your money and this project will, of course, help, you know, bring back the, the second coming and so on. It's very, very, people are making a lot of money off of this, and Israel is very happy to, you know, to be part of it because it allows, it gives it legitimacy. <laughs> you look shocked. Are, are people, <laughs> I mean, it's real. It, look shocked. I was shocked when I, when I heard this, and then, and then I noticed as I get off the plane every time at Tel Aviv Airport, all the posters in every single gate at Tel Aviv Airport are through this, you know, this bridgeway. I forget what it's called. The name escapes me. You know, it's, there's always posters. It's usually advertisements, businesses, you know, banks, whatever. At Tel Aviv Airport, it's all advertisements for this Christians for Jews, whatever it's called. I, I know I, I was in France the summer before COVID started. And I was there talking to the French Jewish community about the efforts being made by the Israelis to transport the Jews in France to Israel. That's a big thing because contrary to what people believe, it's surprising to a lot of people, aside from America and Israel, the next largest Jewish community in the world is in France. And what they're telling the people in France is that they should, because of anti-Semitism in France, which does exist, but it's highly, highly exaggerated. The people in France described it to me, highly exaggerated. They should go to Israel and have a much better life. But then I hear from them that so many of them that go to Israel, they end up locating them in the territories and they have a much worse life. And many of them come back in the mid 70s when the thing was uh, immigration from Russia. 
most immigrants from Russia chose to go to the United States and not Israel. And many of those Russian Jews left Israel. And unfortunately, Russian immigrants to Israel have a tremendously high suicide rate. In between the years 2000 and 2013, more than a third of all Israelis who committed suicide were immigrants to the country, 80% of which almost were immigrants from the Soviet Union. So they bring these people to Israel and they have a worse life than they had elsewhere, but they're kind of stuck. They throw them in the territories. And of course, it's more dangerous. Israel's the most dangerous place where Jews live. Can I tell you a story? You remember about a year ago, there was in Monsi, there was a synagogue that was attacked by a lunatic waving a machete and he, he killed somebody and, and injured others. The rabbi over there, Rabbi Rottenberg, his name is, he once gave a speech in his synagogue. It's in Yiddish, but you can get a, with English subtitles on, online. He said that since that incident, he was getting calls from all sorts of authorities and dignitaries in Israel begging him to move to Israel, offering him whatever he wants if he would just move to Israel because they wanted to demonstrate how Jews in America are in danger and as a solution they have to move to Israel. And he said, I told them, what are you, crazy? It's much safer here than it is in Israel. Why in the world would I move to Israel? They're lunatics, he said. They're crazy people. Why would I move to Israel? Why would I do this? So the whole thing is a, it's, it's propaganda. Oh, yeah. The whole I, heard, I heard a similar story. I, heard a sim- I had a similar conversation with Rabbi Beck in the UK. Mm-hmm. Beck, mm-hmm. uh, the son of Rabbi Beck. And he was saying, he, he, you know, he was saying, I've lived here in the UK for, what did he say, 35 years or mm-hmm. something. He said, I don't know what a British soldier looks like. Right. I've never seen a, I've never seen that. My kids have never seen a gun. He says, in Israel, every kid knows what a soldier looks like, what a gun looks like. And he says, here, we put out the trash. We never worry about it. In Israel, if you put out, if if anybody sees a package, you know, that right away, everybody is scared. There might be a bomb and you call the police. Here he said, and then he said, you know, we use cabs to send our kids to school. Mm-hmm. And all the cab drivers, because in, in, in London, Stamford Hill, there's a lot of this a large Muslim community, an Arab community that lives nearby. Mm-hmm. They're all Arabs and Muslims. He says in decades and decades and decades, he said, there hasn't been a single, not a single incident that made us worry or think twice about sending our kids in a cab with Arabs or Muslims. Never, he said. There, everybody, you see, you see somebody who even looks like an Arab. People, of course, are freaking out because, mostly because of the racism. You know, even Jews who look like Arabs, you know, Jews who came from Arab countries. Right. Sometimes stopped because they either have an accent or they, you know, they have the wrong accent, I should say. Right. And they have the wrong look. It's in, it's insanity. It's absolute insanity. The claim that somehow it's safer. And you know, I think you know Jews are not stupid. I mean, people know what's going on there. I mean, to see that Israel is 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 a terribly violent and racist place. I mean, you, you, all you have to, to to do is is to pay attention. Really, that's all you have to do is to pay attention and to read through the propaganda, which it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to do. You see, well. Miko, I have a rule that, unfortunately, you can't always convince people of something by proving it to them. And it's while people say seeing is believing, the more, it's more likely that believing is seeing. 
people see what they want to believe. Oh, absolutely. And propaganda can do all sorts of things. We see it throughout history, right? We saw it on January 6th here in your neighborhood in, in Washington, D.C., in the United States. I have, I have one final question, Amico, for you. It's a question of strategy for your anti-Zionist activists and one of philosophy from where I'm coming from. There is clearly a connection, a link between Israel's actions and this philosophy, this mythology that Israel professes that they represent the Jews, that they're the nation state of the Jews, that they are the Jewish people. The simplest example is something like Naftali Bennett, who, as you told me, may be the next prime minister in Israel. I hope not, but he may. He was interviewed, I saw, by Mehdi Hassan in Washington, D.C., and Mehdi Hassan asked him about the settlements and territories and things like that. And he said to a Muslim interviewer in front of millions of viewers on television that he says, if you don't like it, change the Bible. The Bible promised the Jews the land. Now, the truth is the Bible did not promise the Jews the land in the, the sense that he means it at all. And it was conditional, and we were kicked out, and we're waiting for the Messiah. But, but forget about that he doesn't understand Judaism. That a this should be stated as a political position. That's uh, a problematic, to say the least. And the whole idea of what they call historical right, I'm not sure what that means. The whole, I don't even know what that means, historical right. But this whole idea of historical right and all sorts of things— because they framed this whole conflict between Israel and the Palestinians as not Israelis and the Palestinians, but Jews and Palestinians, that gives it a completely different connotation. It gives it, it makes it a religious war instead of a political war between Israel and their political enemies. They, it makes it a, a war on, in the name of all the Jews all over the world when it's really Israel. It makes it a war of, of Jewish history, that a necessity of Jewish history, that Israel has to be Israel, the nation state of the Jews. Israel represents the Jews. This is the, the tikvah, the, the hope that Jews had for 2,000 years. Now, all of this is mythology. But the war, the activism that you are involved in is two things, like all activism. It's a war against certain actions that you oppose, that Israel does, but it's also a war of ideas. Once you fill somebody with delusions and bad ideas, it's very easy to get them to behave any way you want. So, for example, if you're fighting the communists, it will be nice to say that Stalin was a murderer. He murdered 25 million people. But if you really want to fight the communists, you have to fight communism, not just the actions. To say Stalin killed people, even the Nazis, the Nazis convinced people to kill other people, not because they said, okay, let's rob them of their wallets, said because here are the ideas, there's an there's idea of, of racism, of Aryan race, and, and once you convince people, or look what happened in the United States of America, you convince a bunch of people that the, the election was stolen, and there's a crime about to be committed in the halls of Congress, so they look at themselves as heroes. Now, telling these people that they committed a crime doesn't help, because they don't look at it as them committing a crime. They look at it in, in the context of their ideas. So I would think 
tell me if you think I'm wrong. I would think that it would be a, a very good idea for the the secular activists, the anti-Zionist activists, which they don't care about religion and they don't really have my agenda. And uh, you know my position on the uh, Israeli palestine I look at it the same conflict as India and the and Kashmir. I say, yes, I mean, I, it's not that I don't care about Palestinians. It's not that I don't want. Of course, I want peace. Of course, I care about all the human beings in this world. But it's no more my political issue than any other human rights issue all over the world. But from your perspective, wouldn't it be a good idea? I can't see how it wouldn't. Wouldn't be a good idea to fight the ideas behind the behaviors that you don't like, the idea that Israel represents the Jews, to, to transform this from a religious conflict, which it's not, from a conflict uh, about Jewish survival, which it's not, to what it really is. There's Israel, a secular country like Bulgaria, like China, involved in behavior, and you oppose their behavior, but without refuting the ideas, without fighting the ideas, I don't see how you're going to, I, I see it much, a much greater challenge for you to fight behavior if you don't fight their ideas. I agree. I have to I have to go back though before I answer that. As you were talking about the religion and you know how they something you said reminded me after the Charlie Hebdo uh, you know murder of the of the cartoonists in Paris there was this whole all the world leaders came and you know Netanyahu shoved himself to the front row and and there was this image where there was Netanyahu there was King Abdullah of Jordan and there's all these people and the CNN guy who was doing the, you know, the commentator, the comment, the commenting said, look, you know, there's King Abdullah, you know, the Hashemites uh, claim mm-hmm. the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Said, look, there's the, you know, King Abdullah, who's the, who's the descendant of, of, of Muhammad and Benjamin Netanyahu, the descendant of King David. And I thought, oh my God, what are they doing? Are they out of their minds? What is he talking about? The descendant of King David Netanyahu? He comes from Poland, from God's sake. How do you even, where does that even come from? You know, the nonsense has reached points where people actually believe the nonsense that they're being fed and they, and they could continue to perpetuate it to, 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 you know, to, to tell it. But anyway, back to your, back to your uh, other question. I, I agree with you completely. I think, re, I think criticizing Israel is not the point. Rejecting Zionism is the point. Yes. Yes. I make a point of always telling, talking about, Zionism as an inherently racist idea, idea and ideology, which needs to be rejected. It's about rejecting Zionism. And this is precisely why the Zionists are working so hard to conflate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, because they have no defenses. How can you possibly defend what Israel has done in Palestine over the last hundred years, other than to say, well, Rejecting us is rejecting is, is, is racism and anti-Semitism. So why they have a new definition, they've pushed this new definition of anti-Semitism, which does not help Jewish people, which does not help fight anti-Semitism, but says that if you criticize Israel in particular ways, you are anti-Semitic. And this new definition, the IHRA, you've probably heard of it. Oh, yes. 
is 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 the new thing now that every country every government every non-governmental agency universities churches are adopting so that's exactly what what I say I say we must reject Zionism Zionism and the Zionist institutions and the Zionist idea is the problem it's not just you know people say well it's the government it's this no it's the inherent idea I'll give you an example recently in my neighborhood there was a webinar that That I did not listen to because they wanted fifty dollars for the series it's it was called understanding the Israeli Palestinian conflict or something like that okay and part one was called ancient Israel exploring Jewish roots the first question Judaism nationality or religion that is the start the first foundation of this whole series by Zionists Hasbara people who On how to understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Jews are a nationality. Nationalities have homelands. I don't even know how to say homeland. In, there's no word for homeland in rabbinic Hebrew. In modern Hebrew, it's Moledet, which means the place the nation was born. And in fact, in the Israeli Declaration of Independence, the first thing it says, the nation was born here. But that's not Judaism. Judaism, the nation was born at Mount Sinai. Before there was any land, we don't have a national homeland. That's a political concept invented together with nationalism. You know, that's very, very interesting that in the Declaration of Independence, I wonder if it's a question of ignorance or just somebody didn't notice or what to say that the nation was born in Israel or in fact, according to Jew, Judaism itself, they were born at Mount Sinai, which is not, that is actually a very interesting contradiction. That's one of the main distortions of Zionism of Jews. Can I tell you something? I'm very proud of my son. When he was, what was he, 19, I think he was, 20 maybe, he went to Israel to study in Jerusalem in the most anti-Zionist yeshiva there. And after one day, okay, he calls me on the phone. He says, Tati, the, you have no idea the brainwashing, the Zionist brainwashing over here. Now, he's over there in Geula, which is very, a Haredi anti-Zionist neighborhood. And I said, what, what did you see in one day? He says, listen to me. Did you ever notice this, Miko? He says, he was, first day, he went all over Jerusalem, walking around, right? He looked at a, a map in Google uh, Earth. He said, you know, the streets mostly are named after Jewish personalities, both religious and uh, non-religious, anti-Semitic. He says, there is no street in all of Jerusalem named after Moses. There is no street in all of Jerusalem named after Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. The names of the streets start with Yehoshua bin Nun. Meaning they start when the Jews went into the Holy Land. Now, there are streets, listen to this, there are streets named Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, the tribes, but uh, on those blue plaques on the street corners, it doesn't say Jacob's children. It says one of the tribes of Israel, meaning when the tribes went into the Holy Land and divided it. Now, he noticed this because he knows that Gretz, the one that more than anybody else paved the ground for Judaism to be transformed into a nationality, starts his Jewish history with the Jews coming into the Holy Land. He doesn't have Abraham. He doesn't have Moses. He has the Jews coming into the Holy Land. Now, we did find, on the, after a lot of research, there's one neighborhood that has, like, the, the Imois, the matriarchs, there's Rachel and one neighborhood, Leah, Rachel, Rivka, uh, Rebecca, and, and those. But all these... Great Jewish personalities are not there. It starts with Joshua, and it goes 
through everybody, down to Jabotinsky and, and, and Ralph Cook and Herzl and all of these things. Why? Because according to Israeli Zionist ideology, the Jewish nation began, was born in the Holy Land. That's what homelands means. In English, we call it homeland, which is a, it, it's, a, it's an ambiguous terminology. But in Hebrew, the word in modern Hebrew, moledet, that means where the nation was born. That's the word. This is all propaganda. Fascinating. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, Jabotinsky, Herzl, those guys, Weizmann, every city, and by the way, Balfour. Those yes. Those names you find streets in every single city, in uh, every single Israeli city. You find those Herzl. And usually, many times, they come at the, at the in cities that were occupied, it'll come at the expense of names of important Palestinian and, and Arab, you know, figures that those streets used to be named after. This place, I'm tell, t- please tell our, our list, the listener this story where your mother was offered a uh, house. Well, in, you know, my mother was born in Jerusalem, born and raised in Jerusalem. And uh, this, uh, she was born in 1926. In, 1920, in 1948, you know, the, the Zionist forces came and took the the Palestinian neighborhoods in Jerusalem. Today, most people don't even know that West Jerusalem was a Palestinian city and was full of Palestinians. And many of the neighborhoods were Palestinian neighborhoods. There's no sign of that because 1948, the ethnic cleansing of that part of the city was absolutely complete. Not a single Palestinian family, not a single Palestinian was allowed to remain. But when my mother grew up, it was a mixed, it was a Palestinian city with a few Jewish neighborhoods, Zionists that were being inhabited by Zionists, and of course, Masharim and the, and the ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods. Then when the Zionist forces came in, you know, they kicked everybody out and the homes were made of, these are beautiful homes, you know, the, the Palestinian neighborhoods in Jerusalem were mostly beautiful, you know, very well, these are wealthy Palestinian families. And these homes are magnificent and many of them uh, were not destroyed, you know, were kept, many of these neighborhoods and many of the homes. And my mother was living at the time, she already had two children. She was living in a small apartment with her mother. And just for that, you know, she deserved a prize because my grandmother was not, you know, an easy person to live with, plus two little children. My father was, you know, in the front fighting for the cause, fighting for the Zionist state, for the Zionist army. And so she was offered, and this is a story I have to tell you, this is a story that she told me I don't know how many times, mm-hmm. but as, as, long, as, as far back as I remember myself, I remember the story. <laughs> and the many, many, and she repeated many, many times. And then she was offered one of these homes. What do you mean offer? Yeah. They're like, here, take it? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, the home is available. You're, you know, your husband's an officer. You're, you know, you're, you're available. This home is available. Yes. And many of her friends, too. She had many friends who, who, who were offered these homes. Like the spoils of war. Yes. And, you know, at 22, with two children being offered a beautiful, and these are, again, these are, these are spacious, beautiful homes. What neighborhood was it in? Like today, what would neighborhood would be called? Where? I think it was offered in Talbia. Uh-huh. And she said, no, how can I take the home of another mother? How can I move into the home of a family that now is refugees? And she refused. And it's and my whole life, I remember her telling me the story. And as I was writing The General Son, I went back and asked her for that story again and mm-hmm. again and again. And, and as she got older, she 
she mourned the loss of the Palestinian neighbors that they had and the Palestinian neighborhood that, that you know, were such an important part of Jerusalem. And, and she remembers she, it. And she remembers, yeah. And as she got older, she she became more, you know, she remembers that she told the story again and, and she expressed even greater sadness at the loss of these wonderful people that made up, you know, that made up the city of Jerusalem. They're such a big part of, of the makeup of, of the character of Jerusalem. Did she ever describe to you the personalities of the Palestinian people? Because I know the Orthodox Jews who were in Jerusalem then always tell about how one day a year when the women would go to synagogue on on Yom Kippur and the children were home, usually the women didn't go. But on that one day when they needed babysitters and there were no babysitters available because everybody was in the synagogue, the Arabs, the Arab people used to babysit for the Jewish children and nobody had any problem with that until the Zionists came. Did your mother offer a perspective on her view of what the neighbors were like, the Palestinians? Well, were they hostile? She had a very positive view of mm-hmm. them. I don't think there was any interaction between the Zionists and the and, and you know the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there was there was much of of, uh, of that, and they saw them as adversaries. But she personally, you know, she liked the neighborhoods. She liked the beautiful houses with the lemon tree in front, and mm-hmm. you know, the whole the, the scenery, you know, of, of that of that of what used to be that world that, that once existed in. In Jerusalem, she had a fondness for it because that was the that was her neighborhood. That was the city that she was raised in. That was the the character of the place where she was raised. So she had a real uh, love for that. At the same time, she was also a Zionist, and you know admired her her father, who was a Zionist, and her husband, who became who was an officer. So she lived in this you know duality, I suppose. But I don't think they had any real connection with the Palestinians because they saw them as adversaries, mostly. Mm. We're just about running out of time here. So, Miko, I want to thank you for being on the show. And it's it's always, always great to speak to you. Always extremely interesting. I feel the same way. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Committing High Reason. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. For the latest from Rabbi Shapiro and to sign up for his newsletter, head on over to committinghighreason.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.